You're listening to audio from Risen Life Fellowship. If you'd like to learn more about our church or donate to this ministry, please visit risenlifefellowship.com. Amen. Thank you, Mike. Uh, Yeah, let me just echo what he said. I want to encourage you to be a part of that. We did it last year. Uh, without the full meal, so this year we'll have the 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 meal at the end, which will be even more of a blessing. So I uh, hope that you'll join us for that. Um, well, good morning to you. Hope you're well this morning. It's great to see you. It's great to worship with you this morning. I'll ask you to turn with me to First Timothy chapter two. Once again, First Timothy chapter two. Let me also just uh, reiterate while you're turning, uh, just to be praying for those with the BCM this week um, at Beach Reach. And it sounds like God's already doing amazing things. And I stay in tune with the, the church app there. And, and I know Kennedy will give us some good updates. And you've also got the, the live feed on there where they post prayer requests live. So um, I just encourage you to take part in that. And uh, you know, the work that we do here in praying is, is just as important as, as their work being there, uh, actually having those conversations. So please don't underestimate that. Please don't underestimate the power of praying for these these uh, souls to, to be saved. Most most spring breakers uh, are going to spring break not looking to meet with Jesus, right? At least not in the way we typically think, right? Uh, and so we want them to... We want them to to come back with uh, a transformation, amen, and, and and we want them to come back uh, with Christ, so uh, be praying for them uh, this week, so um, I, I trust that you're in 1 Timothy chapter 2 now, we've got a lot to cover in these verses that end chapter 2, um, so remember that uh, we're in this study in 1 Timothy that we've titled Blueprints for a Gospel-Centered Church. Because Paul is explaining to Timothy, who is uh, the pastor at Ephesus at this time, uh, he's explaining to Timothy what the church should look like. As the church is responsible for being a pillar and foundation of the truth. And and we're going to see Paul says that in in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, That is, we are, as the church, responsible for upholding uh, the light of truth to this dark world that we live in. So, so we're discovering how we should best do that um, as the church. And, and so far, we, we've talked about doctrine, first of all. We've talked about doctrine and eliminating false teaching. And, and we've talked about prayer. Uh, prayer and doctrine really set the foundation for any gospel-centered church. We cannot be a gospel-centered church without being absolutely founded in uh, biblical doctrine um, and and uh, gospel centered prayer, and, and now at the end of, of chapter two, Paul's explaining another part of this blueprint, uh, which relates to our conduct and the order that God has for things in the church, and he specifically focuses here on how men and women should interact with one another in the fellowship. Uh, so we started looking at these verses last week and and titled our time. Uh, together in this text as God's beautiful design for men and women in the church. 
kind of a long title, but that'll be our title this morning as well. And, and as we read these verses again in a moment, uh, we'll be reminded of, of how controversial uh, this text is to the culture that we live in today. Uh, this is a, a difficult text to stand on in, in 2023, but I, I believe it's also essential for us to trust God with this. Trust God with this as we, as we strive here to be a gospel-centered church. So, so stand with me, if you will. Um, we're going to go ahead and read, um, starting in verse 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 2. We covered some of this last week, um, but we'll, we'll start in verse 8 anyway. He says, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Uh, I thank you, Lord, for this church family, uh, this church body, Lord. and uh, Lord, we're, we're missing several this morning and, and our, our hearts are with them this morning we we love them father as our as our church family we thank you for any visitors that we may have or, or, or people tuning in on online this morning and um, we're just so grateful for that for the opportunity to share your truth um, with the world around us lord and uh, god i pray that as we uh, work through this difficult text uh, this morning that you would just um, give us understanding Give us wisdom, Father. Give me the words that I need uh, to speak your truth to your people, Lord, and uh, help my words to be seasoned with, with grace and love, um, but also with, with just truth, Lord. Um, just speak to your people through me this morning, Father, I ask. and uh, We need you here uh, to be glorified, God. Uh, not any of us. We are here for you. This morning, we declare that together. Uh, what we need this morning is Jesus, and, and we love you, God, and we thank you for your salvation. We thank you again for this time together. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. <clears throat> well, if you weren't with us last week, and you're not familiar with this text of Scripture, you might be a little shaken by what we just read, right? Uh, again, we live in a culture that, that fights against this kind of talk with everything in them. We, we have a culture that hates the idea of, of certain distinctions between men and women, and, and certainly any limiting of any role a man may have that, that, a, that a woman cannot have, or, or vice versa. We, we fight against that in our culture. This is an offensive text to our society, and, and also a text that requires considerable study and, and careful working through if we're going to get it right. 
Um, but, but if we'll do the work of, of careful study here, I think we'll find, um, I think what we'll find is that our instincts to be offended are, are just wrong. And, and that God is, is once again exactly right, and he is all wise in what he says and how he orders things. I'm not going to set this text up um, as thoroughly as I did last week uh, in the interest of, of time. You wouldn't want me to do that, trust me. Uh, we, won't have, we won't have time for that. So I'll ask you uh, to go back and, and listen to last week's sermon uh, to get additional context. And in fact, I would strongly suggest, if you weren't here last week, to, to go back on your own time and, and, and look at last week's sermon to, to get more of a full picture here. But we've been working through these principles for how men and women are to operate together in the church body to reflect uh, God's beautiful design. And, and the first couple of principles were foundational and overarching, or overarching as we dive into the rest of these. And so I'll remind you of those principles we've covered so far. First was the principle that both men and women are, are equal in dignity and value to God. Both men and women are equal in dignity and value to God. We're tempted to see in this text a devaluing of, uh, of women. And that's what the culture, of course, would have us to think. That's the claim that they would make. So we must be reminded that the whole of Scripture, including this text, proclaims the equality of men and women before God in dignity and value. However, equally true, and, and our second principle, is that God created men and women with distinct yet complementary roles. Though men and women are completely equal in dignity, in value, in usefulness to the kingdom, in the types of gifts, in the command to preach the gospel, we have distinct and complementary roles in both the home and in the church. This is God's perfect design. Now, one role is not better than another role, but different and distinct. We focused on, on some of what makes our roles distinct in the home last time, and, and then we began to unpack what this means in the church, um, which is the focus of, of this text, really. And so we began in verse 8 to pick up another principle. And this one was hard for the men last week, right? And it's, it's men should lead the way for the church body. God's design is that men would be leaders in both the home and in the church. We should lead in, in worship and in holiness and, importantly, in service. Leadership is sacrificial service. So uh, this isn't this skewed view of, of leadership where the, the man is like, woman, you just go in there and make me a sandwich. That's not what we're talking about here. That's ridiculous, in fact. Biblical leadership involves laying your life down for those you lead. That's what men are called to. And, and, and we looked at, at some very practical ways that, that men need to to lead, even in our church body, and at men's breakfast yesterday, we discussed this at even more length, and, and, and let me just say, I'm proud of the way the men of this church desire to respond to this calling. Now, I'm not saying we get it perfectly, and we're going to get it perfectly, but I am proud of the way that the men of this church, the hearts in desiring to respond 
to God's calling for their lives. And ladies, we need your help sometimes in knowing the specifics of how to respond. So, so we ask humbly for your help as well. Um, but we will not, did I get an amen over there? <laughs> but but we'll, we'll not re-preach last week's sermon uh, as we have plenty to cover today. So, so we ended last week with a fourth principle, um, which was that women should focus on good works rather than outward appearance. It's so easily, especially I think for, for ladies, to get caught up in this comparison game with one another. I think if especially for the ladies, you probably feel that this morning, that, that temptation to compare with one another. Um, it's so easy to buy the lie that you'll be more valuable if you'll dress more extravagantly or more, um, more socially acceptable or, or more provocatively even in some cases in order to win the attention of men, which is apparently a lie that these Ephesian women were also buying but Paul is saying we should not dress in a way that distracts attention away from who we are here to worship. And that is God. And he's stressing in verse 10 that attention from men is, is a cheap substitute for acceptance by God. Right? Which you have if you are in Christ this morning. You are a daughter of the king and you have nothing to prove to anyone by the way you dress or anything else in, in your life, for that matter. And it's so easy for women to be torn down in this comparison game, whether it's in, in the way uh, we dress or, or the way our house looks or the way that we parent or uh, whatever else you want to fill in the blank with. Um, it's so easy to fall into that comparison game and, that be- and become really consumed in that. And so Paul says, rather than focusing on this outward facade, this outward appearance, uh, and these outward distractions, Paul implores ladies to dress themselves with good works. Focus on godly character, which is precious to God, as we read in First Peter last week. Again, much more can be said on all of those principles, and has been said last week, so I'll point you there if you'd like more context uh, there, But this morning we'll move into the very controversial part of this text, starting in verse 11. And there, but before the controversy, we must not skip over the first few words, which are, let a woman learn. And we'll pick up another principle here. Women are equal learners with men in the church. Now, this is something that, that may seem obvious to us today in in 2023, but if we're to get the full context of this passage, we need to understand just how controversial and just how liberating those first four words would have been in the first century. Let a woman learn. This is, first of all, a command from Paul for women to be taught in the church body. And not to be excluded. And this would have been shocking at this time. See, women at this time were not considered by society as worthy of much education, unfortunately. There would be some women who received um, an education. But but by and large, women were not permitted to learn either in society at large or even in Judaism. Now, here's a quote from uh, a man named Plutarch. 
He's not a Christian. He's not Jewish either. But he was a famous philosopher of the first century. You may have heard his name. And it gives us a good idea about uh, how the culture felt about, uh, about this. He says this, Wives should be hidden away when not accompanied by their husbands. He went on in this quote to advise that, that women be content with their husbands' friends rather than making their own. Yikes. Again, not, not my opinion, but a quote from Plutarch, a first century pagan philosopher. Okay, But it gives us a good idea of, of kind of how women were treated in the first century. But, you know, this kind of thinking also affected the Jewish leaders of this time. Women were not, women were not allowed to uh, attend synagogue. Or they were only allowed to go so far in the temple. They weren't allowed to study the Torah. Most rabbis refused to teach women. I know it's, it's hard for us to kind of grasp in, in our culture, but most rabbis refused to teach women. And I, I want to stress that this kind of thinking was not derived from the Old Testament. This was not God's design, but nevertheless, this is how it was in Judaism in the first century. See, God dealt with many women directly in the Old Testament. And the New Testament. We think of Eve, who he, he spoke to directly. Hagar, Hannah, Deborah, many others in the Old Testament. And as the New Testament opens up, they're still in the Old Covenant, and we see God send his angel to Mary, right? And to Elizabeth, and he deals directly with them. Women were to be full and equal partakers of God's law and God's calling for the Jewish people. So I don't want us to get this idea that, that the Jews got this idea from God. They did not. This did not come from any biblical way of thinking. But nevertheless, it was common in the first century for women to be excluded from higher education or religious education. And Paul really shocks the culture by saying, it's not the second part of this verse that's shocking to, to the, this culture. In the first century, it's the first part of this verse that's shocking to the culture. He says it will not be this way in the church. Women and men are equal learners and women should learn all that they can. Let a woman learn. Jesus, unlike other rabbis at the time, he gladly accepted women as his students. And they played an important, important role in his ministry. And today we need women who are educated at the highest levels in theology, in apologetics, in how to, to care for people in that pastoral care. We need women trained in these things. This is not only not off limits, but it is needful in the body of Christ for women to be educated thoroughly in the scriptures and in the spread of the gospel. And it's needful for our women here to take interest in learning how to rightly divide the word of God. And I know that you do. But so that we can reach this world for Christ. So before we get to the controversial part to us, uh, let's get that straight. Now, now, Paul doesn't stop the sentence there in verse 11. Because although learning is something commanded for the women, he wants to make sure it's done 
reflecting the pattern that God has for his church. And so I'd like to read verses 11 and 12 again, um, and, and then give two principles, and then take a little time to explain it well, hopefully. So let's read those verses uh, once again. Verse 11, let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Boy, it's hard to even read those verses, isn't it? Don't we kind of have something in us that, that's like, oh, don't like that. Definitely don't like the way you wrote that, Paul. Um, this is without a doubt an offensive uh, couple of verses in our culture and, and one that, that we want to make sure we understand well within the context that it's written. Is, is Paul saying here that, that when we come into the gathered assembly, um, is he saying that, that women are to be in complete silence? Is that what he means here? No, he, he does not mean that. Uh, I think it's quite obvious when you put this verse within the larger framework of Scripture that Paul is not commanding complete silence for women in the church. And that would be an irresponsible way to interpret this text. See, Paul, in other places, makes it clear that women prayed and prophesied in the church. In 1 Corinthians 11, we see exactly that. And we see Paul giving guidelines to that now in first corinthians 11 the same principle we're going to learn here applies and he's making that principle clear but he, there's clearly women who are praying and prophesying in the churches in first corinthians 11 and we'll read some other verses in a moment that that allude to, to something similar um, another thing that's helpful here is that the word translated silence here in these verses, here in, in verse 11, let a woman learn in silence. Now, that word translated silence is, is the same word that's translated peaceable in verse 2. So we should pray for leaders that we might live quiet and peaceable lives. That's what verse 2 says. So obviously it doesn't mean complete and total silence there, right? So it doesn't mean it here either. So I think a better translation in verse 11 would be learning with a, a peaceable spirit. That is, without arguing or, or interrupting. Perhaps they were having uh, some issue in the church of Ephesus with this. I don't know. We're not told. Um, but, but a peaceable and quiet spirit in learning. So let me give us two principles that I think will help us to see uh, what Paul is saying here. So here they come. Women should not teach or exercise authority over men in the church gathering. And the second one is men and women should willingly submit to the biblical teaching and leadership of elders. Okay, so it is verse 12 that helps clarify what Paul is prohibiting in verse 11 when he says silence with all submission. It is peaceable and, and quiet in relation, in relation to the teaching and submission in relation to the authority. But it's important to understand that Paul is not advocating a general submission of all women to all men in the church. That's not what he's saying here. Nowhere does the Bible teach that you as a woman, you must submit to every man in the church. That's ridiculous. 
And we should not teach it that way. Nowhere does the Bible teach it that way. Rather, it is submission and a teachable spirit in regards to those who are in authority and those who teach when the church is gathered together. And in the context of 1 Timothy and the rest of the New Testament, who are those people who are responsible for the teaching and governing of the church body? Well, it's the pastors, the elders, overseers, bishops. Those four words, those are all interchangeable in the New Testament. Pastor, elder, overseer, bishop. I'm going to use the word elder most of the time when I talk about it today because that's the terminology we use here, right? I don't, we don't call really each other uh, pastors a lot. We, we use the term elder a whole lot more. Um, but those words are interchangeable in the New Testament. Um, so those are the ones, those are the people, the men responsible for teaching and authority in the church. So we see in the very next section, starting chapter 3, so these, these are just the next verses here. Remember, they wouldn't have had chapter breaks in, when this was first written. So these are the very next things that Paul says. And Paul gives the qualifications for elders, and he uses the term overseers there. And Drew is going to take us through that next week. But looking in verse 2 of chapter 3, we see that the elder must be able to teach. Because that's the main responsibility of his office, to teach. And we also see in verse 5 that he should rule his own house well. Because if he can't govern his home, how in the world is he going to govern the church? Then moving to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, uh, same book, right? Same letter that Paul's writing to Timothy. And he says, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching or, or in the word and doctrine. In other words, uh, those two, two responsibilities are in, are in view here again, ruling and teaching. So, in context, we see that this prohibition on teaching and having authority is, is at least a statement that elders who are tasked with governing and with teaching the church doctrine are to be men. Just as in the home, God's design is for male headship. We see the same design in the church. Now, we're going to learn next week that the office of elder is also not just for any man, right? There's plenty of men who are completely disqualified from being an elder in a church. God has specific qualifications for those men who would provide doctrinal direction and governing for the church body. And we do well to adhere to those uh, qualifications. And so it's not just women who submit to elders but also men who are not holding that office. The principle here, though, is, is, is male headship. And we must be careful to, to uphold this principle in our homes and in the church. Now, some will object and say that, that, that women have, have held a vast array of important roles in God's kingdom in the Bible, right? And to that I say, absolutely, amen, completely Agree with that. Jesus first appeared to women after his resurrection. 
It doesn't get any greater than that. Jesus first revealed himself as Messiah to a woman. Not just a woman, a Samaritan, uh, a Samaritan woman. At the well in, in John chapter 4. Paul commends a host of women in, in Romans chapter 16. He, he, he names a bunch of them in Romans chapter 16 as he's giving his, his final greetings there. Um, and he, he commends a bunch of women for their essential contributions to his ministry. I think there's some evidence that women served as deacons in the church. Uh, women like Lydia funded churches. And Lydia uh, had the church of Philippi meet in her home. That was the church of Philippi, at least when it started. Some of Jesus' most faithful followers were women. However, what we never see in the Old Testament is a woman serving in the office of priest. And what we never see in the New Testament is a woman serving in the office of pastor, elder, overseer. It's just not there. It just isn't there. It's clear that Jesus loved and valued the role of women in his ministry. Absolutely. But if he wanted to set the record straight on women serving as pastors, it would have been very easy. All he would have had to do was name one or two women as apostles. There were plenty of followers of Jesus, close followers of Jesus, that he could have very easily named as apostles. But I think he was setting a pattern when he chose 12 men in that role, in that office. Jesus, it's not like he was caught in some cultural time warp and he was just bound by the culture of his day. He knew the controversy that we would be facing in 2023, right? He knew this would be a big deal in 2023. And so he could have very easily just said it straight at the beginning. If women were to play that role in his ministry. Jesus wasn't a, a victim of the culture of his day just trying to appease the culture. Rather, he was pointing to the design that he knows works best for his church, whether we understand it fully or we don't. Now, is Paul saying here then that women should never teach or that they don't have the gift of teaching? No, he's not saying that. See, Titus Chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, it instructs older women to teach younger women. Priscilla taught Apollos the word of God. Things that he was missing in his theology. Priscilla, a woman, taught Apollos those things alongside her husband, Aquila. That's Acts chapter 18, if you want to check it out. Paul even tells this same Timothy... In 2 Timothy, to remember remember your own mother and your grandmother who were instrumental in uh, Timothy's faith. He says they were the ones who instilled the word of God into you, Timothy. 
It was your, your mother and your grandmother. Women were essential in teaching Timothy himself in his home. Apparently his father wasn't around. It wasn't a Christian. And women were vital in his life, and they're vital uh, for teaching our children today even. Uh, the teaching and leadership gifts of women are essential to the church. The pastoral gifts of women are essential to the church. And they take a variety of forms. And we desperately need women who can teach and who can disciple and who have pastoral giftings to come alongside other women and children in a way that, that no man can. I'm not the one that needs to be walking through a woman in a pastoral way. Paula can do it so much better. Right? My wife could do it so much better. We need women who have those pastoral gifts. Certainly I'll play a role in that. But we need women also who have those gifts, who, who can understand much better than I can. Amen? The giftings of, of, of my wife and of Paula and of Carrie and of many of you ladies have been and are vital to our church. And they have been vital to the spiritual growth of myself and many of you other men in our congregation. Amen? Yeah, Heath, I know you better say Amen. <laughs> They've been absolutely vital uh, to not just the women in our church, but to the men of our church. However, none of these examples would do anything to argue that the authoritative teaching and leading of the church uh, should be done by anything other than men who serve as elders in the church. That is God's design and has nothing to do with men somehow being more capable or gifted or more competent than women. It's simply his design from the beginning, as we're going to see in a moment. Now, another question, does this mean that women should never teach men in the church gathering? Well, first of all, it's important to note that the scope here of this passage is the gathered assembly of the mixed congregation. So men and women, the church body as a whole. Uh, it's not one on one conversations. That's not the scope here. It's not politics. It's not business. It's not uh, anything else out there. That's not the scope of this passage. But it is God's design for the church gathering. Now, within the gathering today, there are a lot of different things going on, unlike the first century church where where the elders did all the teaching, essentially. Everybody was gathered together and then the elders did all of the teaching. Well, today, what do we have? We have Sunday school class. Right? We have youth groups. We have college groups. We have um, Wednesday night services, Sunday night services. We have children's ministry. We have small groups. We have conferences. We have so many things that weren't present in the first century. 
so many different outlets of teaching. So should women ever teach in a setting with adult men? And I think that's a question that the elders of each church have to answer for themselves on a case-by-case basis. And I can't stand here and give you the definitive answer in every scenario. But what I will say is that it's essential for the church elders in weighing these scenarios to ask the question, are we honoring the principle of male headship with whoever teaches or leads in a given scenario? Are we honoring that principle? Or are we bringing confusion to the body? We don't want the body to be confused on this issue. That is the question that our elders have, have been working through even, even recently um, in, in thinking about this because we have women who are amazing teachers. And, and so we must weigh each situation in light of God's design for his body. And we will work to honor this principle here in whatever we do in a given scenario. We won't go through every single scenario this morning. So now some will object to all of this. And they will say, this is all cultural. Can't you see? This is just this is something particular happening at the church of Ephesus. And it doesn't apply to us today. That's the argument that many will make. There's a couple of problems with this. One, it's not just Ephesus. We see similar instruction to Corinth in 1 Corinthians. And we see a pattern from several authors for this principle in the home and in the church. And then secondly, Paul gives his reasons here. We don't have to guess what his reasons are. He gives his reasons. He gives two and neither is cultural. Look in verse 13. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. He points first to the order of creation. The creation that I might argue uh, God called very good. Paul says there was purpose in the order. And that is that man should lead and is held primarily responsible when women and men are viewed together. This isn't a fallout from the curse after the fall. But it's rooted in the order in which God created at the very beginning. Adam first, then Eve. Now, again, that says nothing about value. But it says a lot about authority and role. And they would have clearly understood that in the first century, where the firstborn generally had more authority, not greater value, but more authority, more responsibility. Part of the problem is that we, we just can't stop equating Role with value. We just can't seem to separate those two things in our minds today. Role and value. If I can't have that role, I'm not fulfilling my calling. Or I'm somehow lesser than. We have to get that out of our heads if we're to understand this text. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 should put a rest to that way of thinking for us. 
You can flip over there if you'd like, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, there, Paul is talking about different spiritual gifts. So he's not talking about necessarily men and women. He's talking about spiritual gifts, how that we, the diversity of the gifts in the body. And he says there, can't you see that it would be terrible if we were all the same? If we all had the same gifts, if we all tried to fulfill the same role, that would be terrible. He says, imagine a body made of only hands. That would be ridiculous, of course. There's beauty in God's design of different but equal. And even if we were to buy the lie that this somehow makes a woman's role of lesser value, which it does not, even if we were to concede that, 1 Corinthians 12.22 puts that thinking totally to rest. It says this, No, much rather than, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Those parts of the body that you consider weaker or less than, they are absolutely essential to the church. You may have in your mind that your role is less valuable, but God is telling us that you are simply wrong. Even my office of, of eldership is of absolutely no more importance than the one serving coffee this morning or opening the door or, or sending the encouraging text this morning or, 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 or wrangling the children this morning. We are all of equal value. So don't come to God with, I can't fulfill my calling. Or I'm of, of less value if I cannot fulfill a certain role or office. God's not buying that. And it's just not true. So Paul's reasons here. One, creation suggests different complementary roles for men and women. And then he gives a second reason. The fall demonstrates the importance of this principle of different but complementary roles. So he points to creation. Then he does point to uh, what happened in the fall. Verse 14 is, uh, is a tough one. And verse 14 is not about Eve, the woman, being more gullible than Adam. Oh, she was deceived first. She's, those women, they're so gullible. That is not what Paul is saying here. It's not about women being more gullible than men, and so they shouldn't lead and teach. Rather, it is showing that the fall is a prototype for what happens when this male leadership principle is ignored or rejected. The fall was a prototype of that. What goes wrong when you don't listen to God? In this, in the principle of male headship. And man, again, this falls on you. When you do not listen to God and step up in your families, disaster ensues. It's not that your wife's not capable. It's just simply the way it is. Families need men. They need women too. But families need male leadership. 
that is God's design. And the fall is a prototype of what happens when we subvert that. When we decide uh, that I think God's wrong here because our culture has a better idea. God's design was that God is the head of man. And man is the head of woman. And they are both to rule over the creation. Okay? But in the garden, the exact reverse happened. See, Satan, the creation, subverted God's design and he went after, he didn't go after Adam, he went after Eve. And we read something that might surprise us in in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. We see that Eve took of the fruit and ate and then gave it to her husband with her. Did you catch that? Adam was right there. He was right there. He should have stepped in and strangled that stupid serpent. But he passively stood by and watched his wife be deceived. And then God held Adam responsible. It was Eve who ate first, but Adam who did not fulfill his God-given role of leadership. And Satan preyed on Adam's passivity as he brilliantly does even today with many men in the church and society. And that is what is at stake when we believe the culture's lies, that this text is so offensive. Disaster. Men and women are equal but different. Different roles. Again, Paul's not saying women are less capable, they're more gullible, or whatever you might say. Rather, he's saying that God's design is male headship. And that leads us to another principle. Men and women should joyfully embrace their God-given complementary roles. That might be obvious at this point. But this is not shameful. It's not embarrassing. It's not something we need to hide from. Rather, it is beautiful to God and it is for our good and for his glory in the church and the home now verse 15 which is an absolute doozy right let's read it first nevertheless she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith love and holiness with self-control what does that mean Now, let's first talk about what this is not saying, okay? Because that's very important. It is not saying that if women have children, they will be saved and go to heaven. Wouldn't that completely contradict the gospel of, of by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that Paul is constantly drilling into our heads? And does so here in 1 Timothy as well. Even in this chapter, he talks about the one mediator, Christ Jesus. Not a woman or not her child. But Christ Jesus is the mediator. 
So he's not talking about that. So let me give you two suggestions of what it could mean. Now, there are hundreds of attempts to understand this verse. I'll give you two that I believe do the best job. First, it could be pointing to the birth of Christ here. Okay, so Eve sinned first in the garden. But after she sinned, remember God tells the serpent, remember what he tells the serpent? He says that, um, he says that the serpent is going to have his head crushed by the seed of the woman. Capital S, seed. This is the gospel in Genesis chapter 3. Very early on, the very first uh, chapters of Genesis are pointing to Christ defeating Satan on the cross. This woman's seed is going to crush you, Satan. You'll bruise his heel and he will crush your head. That's what it says. So this could be talking about redemption coming through the childbearing of Jesus, right? However, I think that although this is true, it's really a stretch here for several reasons that I don't have time to explain this morning. We're going to be here forever. So let me give you a second interpretation. I do think that's a good interpretation, but I don't think that's what it's saying here. And that is a true thing, by the way. Everything that was just said is absolutely true. I just don't know that that's what he's saying here. So let me give you a second interpretation. And the one that I think fits most closely with the text. At the fall, part of the curse for Eve and all women was, was that her desire would be for her husband. Remember, God says that to Eve. Your desire will be for your husband. And that word desire is, is really tricky there. It's the same word that God uses a couple of chapters later when he's speaking to Cain. And Cain wants to kill his brother. And he says to Cain, he says, Cain, sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Okay? So it means that sin desired to overtake Cain. And we know that ultimately sin did overtake and he killed his brother. But it's the same word God uses to say that Eve's desire would be for her husband. That is, women would be in a constant struggle to overtake the role God has for men to lead. And Paul's saying here in 1 Timothy 2, I, I think, that the woman will be delivered from that desire to have the role of the man as she embraces her own God-given role, which is most evident through the act of childbearing. That is, childbearing is one role of women that no man will ever fulfill. The culture can try all they want, but no man will ever bear a child. So she will be delivered from that desire and the consequences that come from that desire 
as she embraces her own vital role, which is very precious to God. Which then will display in a heart of faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So I hope that makes sense. And that leads us to one more principle. Women have an indispensable role as life givers in the home and church. As life givers in the home and church. Ladies have a unique responsibility of not only physically bearing children, but have a primary role in raising up the next generation of godly children. In a society that, that, that places much value in women being misindependent, right? You don't need no man, right? And, 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 and that this career-only-minded woman who can and will accomplish everything the men do, in, in that kind of society, we need to hear that a woman's unique role in the home matters more than we could possibly explain. That doesn't mean a woman shouldn't work outside the home. That, that's not what I'm saying. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. But we make a huge mistake if we diminish the essential role women have in the home. And we try to get away from that. And both parties just try to do the man's role. Your work in the home matters eternally, women. The name Eve means life giver. That's what it means. And women give life not only physically but have the ability to give life in the way they nurture and encourage and and support with their words and with their actions. When my son hurts himself, he doesn't cry to daddy. He wants mom. And that's because women have a unique way of nurturing, supporting, encouraging, making you feel at home. That men, we just don't. I feel like I should have got more amens there. (laughs) I feel that personally anyway. I am not my wife. Thank God. She's so much better at these types of things than I am. That's not an excuse, by the way, men. Right? It's not an excuse to be harsh. We talked about that yesterday at men's breakfast. We can't just be harsh men. We have to live with understanding. But you're never going to do it as good as your wife. You're never going to do it as good as the ladies are capable of doing it. I could not do anything I do without my wife fully embracing her incredible role in our family and in this church that is much different than mine. Don't tell my wife that she is somehow being oppressed by the men in her life. And that she could be so much happier. She will think you are crazy. What are you talking about? Culture. Women have unique strengths that men simply do not have in the same way. 
And Paul uses the word childbearing here because it's the most obvious difference between men and women. But does that mean that if a woman doesn't have children of her own or God doesn't bring marriage or pregnancy for some unknown reason that the woman is not fulfilling her God-given role? Absolutely not. Let me read this quote to you because I think she says it much better than I could uh, from a woman called Teresa Bowen that I, I found really uh, helpful and so true. This is a quote from her. She says, as glorious as physically giving birth is, being a life giver involves so much more. It is that nurturing maternal spirit that God has sovereignly placed within the woman's design. It involves viewing children, her own and others, and younger women as gifts and as worthy of her time and her best efforts. She goes on to say, the life-giving aspect of our design, women's design, in no way excludes single women. All women, married, single, with or without children, can nurture and speak life-giving words into others' lives. She says, being a life giver is huge. Ironically, we assign more respect to a woman spending eight hours at a computer in a cubicle than one speaking words of life to a discouraged husband or straying child. It is that nurturing spirit that creates the intangible atmosphere that makes a house a home. I say amen to that. And while it may begin in her home, a life giver's nurturing words and actions are often known throughout her sphere and beyond, sometimes throughout the world. Indeed, something powerful can happen when we align with and embrace our God-given design. And I say amen to all of that. And I thank God for my wife and many other women in this church and in my life who joyfully embrace their role in the kingdom of God and have been life givers to me. And I would encourage ladies also that as much as you can be a life giver with your words and actions, you can also be a life sucker if you choose to. If you choose to not obey the Lord with those words and actions. I think that's the struggle sometimes. Women have just a powerful, beautiful, wonderful way with words. But man, that power can also be transferred into evil if we're not careful. There are those verses in Proverbs that are like, man, if you live with a nagging wife, it's better for you just pack up and live in the desert. You're called to be a life giver. And women, you do it so much better than men do it. Embrace that. You have the power of life and death in your words. And so I would encourage you ladies to be life givers with the way that you nurture and care for and encourage and teach and lead and serve. Be life giving in that. This text is anything but demeaning to women. 
In fact, it's fighting for and celebrating the essential differences that make women so wonderful. Differences our society is bent on eliminating. I pray that our fellowship will be one that proudly lives out the beautiful design that God has for men and women and the roles we play in getting the gospel to our world. That's what it's about, right? I'll end with one final principle, and this is another overarching one. But it's this, the word of God must be our supreme source of truth. I feel like that's a point I've made a million times, right? But, But here we go again. The word of God must be our supreme source of truth. If we are willing to twist this text to make it say something that appeases our culture or our own sinful desires, What else might we do with Scripture? We don't always understand perfectly or agree with God's reasoning for why He's designed things the way He has. And it certainly doesn't always agree with our culture, but we must agree that God is God, and we are not. And His ways are so much wiser and better than ours. And if that's our mindset, if that's our true mindset in this church, then we will have a gospel-centered church. I believe that we do. But we will remain a gospel-centered church. And I believe be a church that God will work literal miracles through if we will submit to Him in all that we do. So that many will be saved and be raised from death to life And not only that, but that we will experience the beauty of his design for us and the joy that follows. I'm going to ask the band to come on up as we close. And I hope that we walk out of here praising God for who we are in Christ and for the unique roles that he's given us in the home and the church. This wasn't comprehensive. There's so much more that could be said um, I'd like to say a whole lot more, trust me, but uh, we don't have time this morning, so we will, we will leave it there. Um, the Bible says a whole lot more. This is worth studying on your own time as well. The roles, the biblical roles of, of men and women, biblical manhood, biblical womanhood. What does God, how has God designed things? So I would invite you to study this um, on your own as well. I can point you in the direction of some really good resources I think will be helpful in that. Um, But bottom line here is we exist at this church to point this lost world to the ultimate giver of life. And that's Jesus Christ. Amen. And we each have our own beautiful role to play in this. But he is the star of this show. He is the one who has given his life so that we might be saved. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and, and close your eyes as we Spend some time with the Lord and considering these things. And if you don't know him this morning, I want to give you an opportunity before we go. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you this morning of sin, then respond. Respond in repentance of that sin. Lord, I'm sorry for the sin that has pierced you, that has put you on the cross. 
through repentance, turning away from that sin, and then turning towards the Savior, turning towards Jesus, running to Him as Savior and as Master. Will you do that this morning? If you need to do that, don't leave here today without a relationship with Jesus. It's, it's so, you want freedom, you're going to find it in Jesus. And only Jesus. And as believers, you want freedom in your families, in your homes. You're going to find it in God's design for your home. My prayer this morning is that as a church, we'd be committed to our calling to be an upholder of God's saving truth. I pray that men would be men who take seriously their calling to set the tone spiritually for their families, for this church, and who empower our ladies to live out their calling and giftings before the Lord. And I pray that women would embrace their calling as life givers who come alongside faithful men with wisdom, encouragement, teaching, joyful submission to God's beautiful design. All that the world might know Him. That's what it's about. It's about that the, Lord, the world might know Jesus. And we proclaim that with the roles of men and women in our homes and the roles of men and women in the church. So let's be that church who upholds these truths, despite what our culture says, who proudly upholds God's design, makes no apology for it. God doesn't need an apology. He is all wise. Let's embrace that this morning. Let me give you a few moments to do what you need to do with Jesus. If you need to come back to him this morning as a believer, then come back. What are you waiting on? He's there with, with open arms waiting to forgive, waiting to move forward. Will you do that this morning? I'll be in the back if you need me. Um, if you want to pray with me, I'd love to pray with you. Uh, so I'll give you this time, and then we'll, we'll close in song.